0: Curious, we got to go down the path of cholesterol, and it seems as though, and I'm sure you'll you'll bring some light to the conversation. But it seems as though, finally, in the last maybe two years, it seems like there's people coming out and actually explaining cortisol, or sorry, cholesterol, in a way that makes sense. You're like, oh, because for so long it was like cortisol is bad. No, oh sorry, I keep saying cortisol. Cholesterol is bad. No, cholesterol is good. You get, you need it. You don't need it. It should be this. It should be that. And now finally, we're like, okay, we're, it seems like we're starting to finally. Clear away the mud and and get a little bit of clarity around cholesterol. And I would love it if you could you know give us some insight into cholesterol's implications specifically around cardiovascular function. Yeah, I know this is an area that you're you're very well versed in.
1: Well, good cholesterol is good. You need cholesterol. It makes hormones. You know, so you need cholesterol. Your body makes most of the cholesterol in the liver that you need. And so it's when cholesterol becomes oxidized or becomes damaged and small that it is an inflammatory cholesterol, which I say an inflammatory product that can get into the vascular wall and cause plaque. And as you know, I'd say 50% of heart attacks or more occur on only mild blockages Mm. because of inflammation. Now, when you take in cholesterol, when you take in fat, as long as you're taking in good fat, your body needs fat to make lipid layers in cells. It's when you take in a lot of bad fat that it becomes oxidized again. The LDL molecule becomes small and dense and it damages the endothelial wall. There are two parts. There's the glycocalyx, which is this blanket, over the endothelial cell. And elevated glucose can damage the glycocalyx. Insulin resistance damages the glycocalyx. Hypertension damages the glycocalyx. And once that starts, you can repair it. But if you continue the cycle, that's what's gonna lead to inflammatory vascular disease. And so you need to eat good fats, good carbs, and good protein. You don't want to eat a marble, even though we all may love a big fat ribeye or a house that's marble. Well, that's not really the best thing in the world for you. Now, a lean flat iron or a, you know, a rip steak or, you know, a New York strip, that's fine. You need carnitine. You need stuff that you get from red meat.
0: Yeah. You
1: know, it's really balanced in, in the diet. It's not all or nothing.
0: So is it the saturated fat itself in the fatty steak that's the problem? Because you have these camps that say there's no challenge with saturated fat whatsoever until you add carbohydrate. When you mix it two, it's the kiss of death. And so I'm curious your thoughts on, um, yeah, like what is it about red meat, the fatty red steak, that is the challenge?
1: It's the saturated fat. You know, it's saturated fat, period. You're going to eat some saturated fat. Yeah. But again, as you've read, when you mix it with carbs, it's even worse. But your diet should not be high in saturated fats. That is not good for anybody. We're not talking about olive oil. We're not talking about, you know, almonds or nuts or seeds. You know, we're talking about, you know, potato chips. We're talking about beef jerkies that you buy over the counter that are not natural. We're talking about marbled steaks. I think eggs are fine. So if we're going to talk about Things like eggs, unless you have the genetics of an APOE44 or a 3-4. 2-4 is very rare. It's the four. Then you really have to worry about saturated fat unless your entire diet is built on saturated fat. If you're a 3-3 or a 2-2, saturated fat's not going to hurt you unless you pair it with icky carbs yeah. and then you create a monster.
0: Standard American diet, bacon and pancakes. Yes. Yeah, bad news. Very, very bad news. So people should
1: get their genetics. You know, even though genetics are expensive, APOE testing gives you a lot of insight into your diet. So if somebody has a 4 in their APOE, I keep them on about less than 30 grams of saturated fat a day. Familial hypercholesterolemia, you know, it's even worse, you know, it's even lower than that.
0: So, someone primary sources of fat. Then, so obviously, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna make an assumption here, but I'm gonna assume we're on the same camp of, you know, most people are saying you gotta avoid vegetable oils because those are t- tend to be pro-inflammatory. So, if we are consuming a relatively high-fat diet, is it primarily just fruit oils? Is it gonna be like coconut, avocado, and and olive oil, and that's and maybe some some eggs,
1: rapeseed oil, and eggs? But nobody can live on a ketogenic diet forever, mm-hmm. because if you are not doing a ketogenic diet. Then you're mixing carbs with that high fat and some of it may be saturated because people don't really eat just monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats. They eat, you know, the icky saturated fats and then those carbs creep in, right? And then protein creeps in. So that's why the ketogenic diet is very specific where it's high in fat, 70% or so, and protein and carbs are really low. So you don't get that.
0: What are your primary sources of protein, Doreen? Because, you know, if you're not eating a lot of beef, you hear people saying, well, chicken and turkey are terrible because they're eating, you know, usually soy and corn. And then obviously fish has problems because, you know, of of metals. So like, where are we we getting our protein? Where where are you suggesting we get, you know, let's say 80% of our protein?
1: I'll give you the cardiology answer.
0: Plant-based, just like
1: the the Mediterranean diet. If you ask Doreen what she does... I grew up in the same world, Ben, that you grew up in. Yeah. I love steak, right? I don't eat it every day. I eat chicken and it's really, you know, chickens that are running around on a farm, the same thing with eggs. So, you know, I, I live in Asheville, North Carolina, and there is a wonderful place here that the chickens and the everything run around. They're just eating off the grass, no toxins, no nothing. I get my eggs and my chicken. Do I eat a lot of fish? Well, it's hard to get really good fish in Asheville, North Carolina. But when I lived in the Northwest, I ate freshwater fish and I ate salmon and I ate those things in moderation because of the mercury and all the other stuff. So really, you can't, and I eat grass-fed organic meat. So, you know, I do the best I can. Now, can I get enough protein? Can you get enough protein as lifters eating chickpeas? No. Eating beans? No.
0: Are they not pro-inflammatory Doreen, So, you know, pea Legoons protein... can be. Yeah, yeah. So, I'm very... That, that's, like, I'm trying to avoid inflammation. That's usually the lens through which I pass everything. And then I'm like, okay, well, beans and, and pea protein, are these not driving up inflammation?
1: They can. Depends on the person. So, you know, there's, there's two sides of every point. Oh, never eat red meat. Well, that's not realistic. Mm. Always eat legumes. Well, first of all, that's not realistic and it, they can be inflammatory, you know, in people. Right. So, you know, there's a balance and I always try and encourage people to eat real food. And I know that the bodybuilders listening say, I can't get all that real food into me. I need to do protein shakes, do a clean protein shake, you know, if anything else.
0: You say, well, you say it's not realistic, like not eating, like I'm not a realistic person. I'll do whatever the hell I need to do to to optimize. But it seems like there's Correct. so much. Maybe I think so. To be to be honest. So what I would like to get to the bottom of is like eating for your genetics. I feel like this has to be the next frontier, and I think we're getting closer. But based on you know the SNPs and, and what you're expressing, and obviously your history, there's got to be someone, hopefully in this world, that maybe a group of people working on. You know, you enter a little bit about your health data, you enter your current blood panel, you talk about your, or you enter your DNA, and all of a sudden it goes, here's the foods that your body needs right now, and you run this every three months. And you just, I could, I could, ex- based on your goals, of course, but I could exist on whatever the hell it tells me to. Cause I, as a bodybuilder, as you understand, like I removed pleasure from food in general, right? It's usually like, I just kind of eat to either be saturated to, to fuel my next workout or I don't know, cause it's social.
1: So there is a company called four by four genetics that actually does that. Oh, well. And you know, I have used it a bunch uh, with patients And they've changed their diet, but I haven't had anybody be able to maintain a purely, unless they totally wanted to give up meat. If they didn't want to do that, it's hard for people to really do that.
0: So this company is advocating vegan diets?
1: Oh, no. It it basically looks at your genetics and looks at what you should and shouldn't eat. Now, I eat basically a 70% plant-based diet. It's the other 30% that's not purely plant-based. My plate is, half my plate is vegetables. There's a small amount of carbs and a small amount of protein, but my plate is basically vegetables.
0: Yeah, I say the same. I say I'm 50% vegan and 50% carnivore, but it's it's probably more like what you're saying. It's it's like 75% of my plate is vegetables, a little bit of fat, and then uh, right. you know, a dec- right. decent sized portion of protein.
1: because right. I put olive oil on it. So Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think where the lines get really blurred. And again, I think it's always going to be that way. It's just, I that mean, that's why people look for coaching is it's like, it has to be nuanced. It has to be circumstantial. It has to be goal dependent and seasonally dependent. And where the lines get blurred is between longevity and performance. Right. And I think those two will always be at odds at some level. I, you know, although I'll say it's, if it's a listener, not, I'm sure you'll agree is health is at the, the foundation of all performance. So you first optimize for health and then you start, you know, stacking things on top for performance. That's really how I address everybody is like fix the base level health first, which is why these conversations around hormones are so great because most people come and, and, as you know, they're just a mess. They're broken. And, and so is hormone intervention uh, the biggest lever we have?
1: Hormone and lifestyle.
0: Lifestyle. Yeah.
1: But it's people, people want a pill. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know how many people you deal with who say, just give me something to fix it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not that easy.
0: Yeah. You know, you mentioned, it takes you mentioned, you mentioned earlier, the GLP-1 agonist semaglutide, you mentioned, I don't know if you mentioned that on our or something I was listening to earlier in the day, but I'm, I'd be curious to your opinions on that, if you have any clients using it and if you have any experience with that.
1: Yes, I have experience with semaglutide. I have experience with tesofensine, uh, which is another one, and the new one that just got F- recently got FDA approved and now it's going for weight loss, terzepatide. I've experienced with all of them. And really, uh, they work. They all work. There are some clients who do better than others on one versus another, but I typically start most people, if they have cardiovascular risk factors, on semaglutide because of the data with decreasing cardiovascular events. Hmm. I start patients very low. I probably start patients lower than the starting dose. I start people on, actually, I probably start people on 0.1, which is 0.25 milligrams for a month the biggest side effects like once a week for a month yeah are the protracted nausea people get nauseous three to five days after and the way to kind of mitigate that is have them start eating a lighter diet beforehand because these drugs work by decreasing your cravings decreasing your hunger and then your belly is full you take the drug and you're nauseous. All of them will give some degree of nausea. Tesefensine has the least, but you can't use, tesofensine is oral. Semaglutide and terzepatide are uh, subcutaneous injections.
0: Are they more or less the same as far as their effect or what, what would be the-, the, the-
1: Terzepatide has been shown at the one milligram semaglutide dose to cause more weight loss and better glucose control. So based on how overweight somebody is, will drive my decision-making and their cardiovascular risk factors. Now, terzepatite is safe for the cardiovascular system, but there are no studies yet that say it decreases event rates.
0: Got it. That's, and that's once the you get
1: people through that nausea cycle, and I typically give people uh, odansetron, which is Zofran, the ODT, the oral dissolvable tablets, you know, to take, uh, most people do fine, especially if they start cutting back the amount of food they eat.
0: So I've got a handful of clients taking the semaglutide. And one thing I've noticed during is a significant decrease in HRV and increase in resting heart rate. Have you seen that?
1: Yes, because they're dehydrated. Uh. They're not eating a lot. And that's probably what's driving that. Are they losing weight? Are they changing their eating style and- Like
0: less food in general?
1: Here's what happens. All of the studies have documented that once they stop, if they haven't changed their lifestyle regarding eating, exercise, whatever, they're going to gain the weight back. So, And they won't lose as much if they continue their same eating habits while on the drug.
0: I was just, Cautious because anytime I see someone who's overweight and their resting heart rate's going up by 20%, I was like, whoa, this could be bad news. Like, maybe we should be careful with this. And their HRV goes, you know, cuts in half almost sometimes. I'm like, okay, this, this to me says we got to stop. Like, so what we started doing, you know, working with their doctors, of course, is cut, just like you said, cutting down the dose very, very small. And it's almost mm-hmm. like microdosing. And that seems to mitigate the effect.
1: Yeah. I, it, I microdose everybody. And yep. if somebody is losing weight on a particular dose, I don't necessarily increase it,
0: right?
1: You know, if they're losing weight and it's doing what it's supposed to do, then I don't, I don't go up just because you can.
0: I'm curious where you sit on as a cardiologist on the statin conversation. I've had a client recently come back and he's done his, his arterial plaque score, which is a zero. He's in his, Oh, he's he's 50. Um, very low plaque score, but his, the size of his arterial thickness is slightly elevated and his cholesterol is a little bit elevated and, and his doctor suggesting statins. And, you know, we have Peter Artia now, I'm sure you're familiar with just kind of being like, hey, statins are great. And everybody else in the world says, man, statins are going to cause some negative side effects. And I have no idea. Like, I'm certainly not a cardiologist or someone who's an expert on, on, you know, cardiovascular drugs. So I'm curious where you sit on that conversation. In
1: people who have, let's start with the easy category secondary prevention people who have had an event the data is clear statins decrease event rates statins decrease mortality statins statin 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 it's an immune modulator it decreases inflammation do you have to keep them on the statin forever that depends on how inflamed they stay how they change their lifestyle primary prevention is a little harder The patient you described has subclinical vascular disease. Their CIMT is a little thick. Their coronary calcium score is zero, you said? Yeah. Is zero, okay? And I don't know what their advanced lipid panel shows, what their LDL particle number is, or any of those other things. But in that guy, if he doesn't want to take statins, if he changes his lifestyle, changes his diet, And I would do something like niacin or Reggie's rice. Things didn't change because if he changes his diet and eats more of a Mediterranean style diet, you know, you'll decrease event rates by 20%. So before I would put that guy, if he's adamant about not taking a statin, and I tell him all the good stuff statins do.
0: He's not. He's not adamant. He's, he's He's looking for guidance.
1: I, in somebody like him, because he's got subclinical vascular disease, I'd put him on a statin. Now, do statin, can statins potentially cause insulin resistance? Yeah, you just monitor people's blood sugar. Do statins cause cognitive impairment? That data is kind of like not that great out there. You know, it's a matter of balancing the evils of cardiovascular disease, which in, in somebody like that guy, if he's got minimal plaque that, you know, his calcium score is zero, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have soft plaque or minimal plaque. It just means it's not calcified. He can drop dead of a heart attack. And we know he has a thickened uh, CIMT. So that guy gets a statin for me.
0: Does that come from the the, the increased size of the CIMT? Does that come from heavyweight training? Can that influence it?
1: it? Only if he's inflamed. It's all driven by inflammation, right? Vascular disease is a chronic inflammatory disease. So it's going to be driven by inflammation, insulin resistance, damaging the glycocalyx um, and the endothelium.
0: So would we, would we look at like an aggressive three to six month protocol to drop inflammation systemically, like doing everything we can and then re- reassess? Or would you go straight to a set?
1: I'd put them on arterosil. It has been uh, approved for plaque regression. So i put them on Arterosol, one or two BID, do aggressive lifestyle stuff. You won't see plaque regression probably in three months, but you can in six months.
0: Uh, I'm not familiar with Arterosol. I'm just looking it up. I'll find it's it made
1: anywhere. by Calroy.
0: Oh, glycocalyx regenerating product. Yes. Hmm. Interesting. And because seen- you
1: have to violate the glycocalyx in order to get endothelial dysfunction, in order to get a thickened uh, CIMT or coronary plaque.
0: Any negative effects to arterosol? Uh,
1: no. no, I haven't found any. And I've been using it for a while. I use it on everybody. I use it on people with leaky guts. I, you know, It's not indicated for that, but look, they have an endothelium also. I should say it's not approved for that.
0: Is this um, over-the-counter or is this a prescription?
1: No, it's over-the-counter.
0: Oh wow. That's wonderful. Good to know. That that that's a that's a big one right there. That's great. And and so I would actually that was perfect segue into if you've seen any other interventions, actually reversing arterial plaque. I want to be respectful of your time, I know, so I apologize for going long, but no,
1: you're fine. Uh, you're fine.
0: Yeah, yeah. Have you've seen any, any other interventions.
1: That's the big one. And statins, I mean the statin data is, you know, is out there.
0: Yeah, have you looked at any enzymes like serpeptase or netokinase? I've seen I've seen some people talking about the potential, or even um, I don't know if you know, there's a guy out there who's kind of preaching high dose vitamin K and saying he's reversed all his arterial plaques. I'm curious if you've ever come across any research on that or seen any any. Yeah,
1: um... vitamin K drives calcium towards the bone and away from the uh, from the carotids. I don't know what high doses. I don't know how long they have to be on it and how big the studies were, but. Depending on the patient and their overall risk, I stick to two things, which is statins and arterosil. In somebody who has just a little bit, you know, like if, say, you want CIMT, you want the inner thickness to be less than 0.5, say somebody's is 0.7. I wouldn't necessarily put them on a statin if they didn't want to take a statin, I'd start with a Mediterranean diet, artericil, you know, all the lifestyle things to decrease inflammation.
0: I'd love to separate this into two kind of uh, directions. First, healing the endothelium. Yep. So, you know, and second, boosting nitric oxide production. I'm sure I'm sure those are very closely related, but For someone who, let's say, is a little bit older, they notice some erectile dysfunction, maybe they notice the absence of of vasodilation in different ways, blood flow, or whatever, what should be the first steps of intervention, or maybe all the steps of intervention, depending depending how many there are? Obviously, we we know remove the things that are
2: doing harm, change the diet, uh, as far as anything in addition to that supplementally. Yep. Well, I think there's two answers. Acutely, so... If your body can make nitric oxide, then you have to take a product that actually produces nitric oxide for you. And that's what we do, and that's what no other company no other product out there does. But then, you know, I don't want to create a Band-Aid or a short-term fix. We understand what leads to endothelial dysfunction, what leads to loss of nitric oxide production, and we know how to fix it. So, we have to repair the endothelium. So, number one, you've got to stop doing the things that disrupt it. As I mentioned, if people got to Start recognizing: Are they using mouthwash? Are they exposed to fluoride? Are they on an acid? And then stop using those. And then there are things that are clinically proven to restore and activate nitric oxide production. Modern physical exercises, as little as twenty to thirty minutes of kind of you know low intensity, you know aerobic exercise, a brisk walk, you know a light jog, uh, rowing, swimming, things like that can stimulate and activate nitric oxide production. We and others have published that the mechanism of certain dietary patterns, whether it's the Japanese diet, a plant-based diet, the nitrate that's present in those vegetables is converted to the, by the microbiome to nitrite and nitric oxide that can prevent BH4 oxidation, recouple the NOS enzyme. And the other beauty about you know certain foods is the high an- antioxidant capacity that then provides a buffering for the oxidative stress so you don't get BH4 oxidation, NOS uncoupling, and 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 decline in nitric oxide production, so those are the kind of the simple practical things people can do. That's actually cost savings, right? You no longer have to buy mouthwash. Uh, you can get off your antacids and then just buy a toothpaste that doesn't have fluoride, and just go exercise in the sun for twenty or thirty minutes. And you know, in most cases, that's sufficient. But when all else fails, then you know we have products to do it for you.
0: So you brought something up there that. You hadn't mentioned previously that, and that's the sun, and that's something that I'd love to dig into if you have any insight there, because it seems like nitric oxide production from sunlight exposure, infrared, and and nitric oxide, in my opinion, seem to go up. Is that absolutely true?
2: So when nitric oxide is produced, as I mentioned earlier, it's a gas, but when it's produced, it has certain targets. It can bind to metals. It can bind to cysteine thiols on, on proteins or sulfur groups. And then when we're exposed to certain wavelengths of light, you know, especially kind of the the, the full spectrum infrared. That frequency of light will liberate nitric oxide bound to metals, and that's why there's blood pressure lowering effects of of, of sunlight, and that's why infrared light therapy is effective. But you have to have sufficient what we call photolabile stores. We published on this, I think, in two thousand one, that there's nitric oxide release or what's called storage forms of nitric oxide that can be released by certain wavelengths of light. So if you want to enhance the, the effects of light therapy, then you, you, you restore your nitric oxide production through our products or through eating some more green leafy vegetables, and then go out in the sun. So now you've improved nitric oxide production. You've titrated up these photolabos stores. Now when you go outside, you re-release that nitric oxide, dilates blood vessels, improves blood flow, oxygenation, normalization of blood pressure, but you have to have the nitric oxide bound. In order for certain wavelengths of light to release it. What are your favorite dietary sources of nitric oxide? You know, if we look at what the data tell us, it certainly comes from from dark green leafy vegetables on average. But as I mentioned earlier, you know, depending upon where you live, how the vegetables are grown will determine and dictate how much nitrates found in those vegetables. But broadly speaking, the darker the green leafy vegetable, the more nitrate it typically has. But, you know, the, the caveat here is that you have to ri- have the right oral bacteria. So you could, have, you could eat a plant-based diet and be completely vegan, but if you're using mouthwash or if you have fluoride in your toothpaste that destroys the microbiome, then you're not going to get any nitric oxide benefit from that diet. In fact, nitrate is a nerd in humans. If, if you don't have the right bacteria, then you just sweat it out, you poop it out, and you, it's excreted in your urine, and it goes completely unchanged and unmetabolized. And that's so that makes sense, right? The bacteria,
0: and that would make sense why antibiotics would kill nitric oxide production. Yeah, yeah. They're so basically oral
2: kill antibiotics do the same thing; they kill the gut bacteria, they kill the oral bacteria, and they have systemic effects.
0: That's super interesting.
2: So, one of the things that that comes up often
0: in the nitric oxide conversation with men with ED specifically is the use of, call it Cialis, Viagra. All these these yeah. very you know high, how I call them big lever pharmaceutical nitric oxide production agents. Uh, What's your thoughts and opinion on that?
2: Well, it's a misconception because these drugs do absolutely nothing to nitric oxide. They potentiate nitric oxide signaling. And now let's let's get a little bit into the science because I think it's very important for people to understand what these drugs are doing. So when nitric oxide is produced in the lining of the blood vessel, it's a gas, right? So as a gas, it can diffuse in all three dimensions. So part of that gas diffuses into the smooth muscle, and its primary target is an enzyme called guanylocyclase. So when nitric oxide activates guanylocyclase in the smooth muscle, then that enzyme makes a second messenger called cyclic GMP, and then cyclic GMP is what's responsible for the calcium mobilization, smooth muscle relaxation, and dilation. So. Drugs like Viagra and Cialis, what we call phosphodiesterase inhibitors. So phosphodiesterase are enzymes that break down cyclic GMP. So nitric oxide increases cyclic GMP production, phosphodiesterase enzymes quickly degrade it. But if you give a phosphodiesterase inhibitor, it prevents the breakdown of cyclic GMP. And so you have prolonged vasodilation, and that's the reason you're warned against four-hour erections. And an unsafe drop in blood pressure because nitric oxide turns this switch on, and these drugs, the PD5 inhibitors, keep it off because they prevent the breakdown of cyclic GMP. So you continue to get this vasodilation, smooth muscle relaxation, and that's what sustains an erection. But the data now, 25 years on the market, these drugs were first approved in 1998, and 50% of the men that are prescribed Viagra or Cialis do not respond with better erections. So, billions of dollars a year in revenue generated from these drugs, and they only work in 50% of the men in which they're given. And why is that? It's because that the people that don't respond to Viagra and Cialis, they don't make enough nitric oxide to activate cyclic GMP production. So, if there's no cyclic GMP around, these drugs have nothing to prevent their breakdown, right? So, this tells us, and we've got clinical data to corroborate to, to this, if we give nitric oxide, now you can take the patients who don't respond to Cialis or Viagra with better erections or symptoms of BPH, now you can make them respond. And more importantly, I think, if you restore nitric oxide, now you can, you can decrease the doses of these drugs, making them, number one, safer, and number two, more effective. But best case scenario, there's never a condition in ED where there's an overactive activity of phosphodiesterase enzyme. So getting a phosphodiesterase inhibitor, if you have normal endothelial dysfunction, is not necessary. If we can restore nitric oxide production in the endothelium, in the nerve endings that innervate the penis or the clitoris, and they can produce nitric oxide, you get vasodilation, and you get normal sexual function. So again, these drugs are not nitric oxide donors. They do nothing to affect nitric oxide production. What they do is potentiate nitric oxide basically. And that's the difference. Okay. That makes sense. So one of the things
0: that came up for me as I was doing some research for the prior chat is the the concept of diet and obviously the prevalence right now of the debate between vegetarian diet and carnivore diet. And I noticed somewhere you you mentioned if someone is you know, pre-diabetic or has diabetes, a carnivore diet can be okay. So am I quoting you correctly on that? And is the inclusion of vegetables not a requirement for these dietary nitrates. Well,
2: you know, nobody knows what the long-term effects are of a straight carnivore diet. Um, I think, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a meat eater, but I th- my philosophy is that we need to get nutrients from a diverse sources of food. Me. So I'm not a big fan of these extreme diets. I'm not a big fan of straight vegetarian vegan, I'm not a, a big fan of, of straight carnivore or, or all meat diet. I think for certain people at certain stages in their life, they can both be very effective. Because really the data, if you have patients with overt cardiovascular disease, 90% occlusion of the coronary arteries, the data on a plant-based diet, back like regression and reversing coronary artery disease is pretty impressive. Pretty you know, I think we, and in having conversations with Joel Kahn and Caldwell Esselstyn and Dean Ornish, You know, I think mechanistically we all agree that the cardioprotective benefits of a plant-based diet can be traced back to nitric oxide production. The nitrate in these foods that can be converted to nitride by the bacteria and then regress plaque. So I think in those patients, a strict vegetarian or plant-based diet may be beneficial to avoid, you know, bypass surgery or putting stents in and, and reverse disease. But for people with metabolic disorders, I think the data on a carnivore-based diet, because really metabolic disease is caused by sugar and uh, simple carbohydrates and glycation of of enzymes and and proteins and rendering them dysfunctional and affecting insulin signaling and glucose uptake. So a meat-based diet or carnivore-based diet, which basically is devoid of any carbohydrates or sugars, can improve metabolic function. Now, the question is, can this be sustained for years and years and years and keep healthy people healthy without developing disease? So I think the jury's still out on that, and we just don't know. But people with clear coronary artery disease that put on a plant-based diet, there's very impressive data on reversing disease. But I think in that condition, it's really do or die, right? If you've got 90% occlusion and invulnerable plaque, then you're a, you're a heart attack waiting to happen. And then people are, are motivated because of fear, and they can take on these extreme diets to save their life. But I think what we try to preach is, you know, be proactive. Don't wait until you have a heart attack or coronary heart disease to, to make changes. Recognize early on when you start developing symptoms before the onset of disease, and then take corrective measures. Then be proactive instead of reactive.
0: How do you feel about... Um... Super greens products, in, in as much as their ability to contribute nitrates, because you know these are you know we talk about you talk about chewing your food as being able to release these nitrates, and obviously there's no chewing of food going going into uh, when you're consuming a super greens product or a spirulina or whatever. Yeah, um, do they still have the ability to contribute nitrates?
2: You know they can, doesn't necessarily mean they do. And I've tested a lot of these products. I've tested most beet products out there. I've tested a lot of the greens products. And look. There are other nutrients contained in these vegetable smoothies or green products that are completely independent of nitric oxide. So we we focus strictly on nitric oxide and what's in these greens or vegetables or foods or supplements that can contribute to nitric oxide production. And I would guesstimate that probably 90% of the products out there, whether they're greens or beet products, don't contain any detectable nitrate, nitrite, or activate nitric oxide production whatsoever. That doesn't mean they're, provide, they're not providing benefit in terms of fiber or other micronutrients, uh, vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, but the metric that we look for is the ability to affect nitric oxide production, and there's very few products out there. In fact, I would venture to guess that only my products, and maybe a couple of others, provide sufficient amounts of nitrate in these green products or beet products that can actually lead to some measurable output of nitric oxide production.
0: So, Dr. Brian, you say you're doing a lot of testing on this stuff, and that's wonderful. And I'm curious, are you, are you testing it uh, in, a, in a lab? Are you testing it in people? Because what would be a real interesting thing to think about is, like, as you mentioned, me consuming nitrates dietarily may not be the same as you consuming nitrates dietarily based on our microbiome. So I'm curious if you're using a, a wide array of people or what exact mechanisms. And, and then also the reason I'm asking is, like, how do we test it? Should we be using nitrate sticks in our, in our saliva or, or in our urine? Or what would be the best, the most um, proven method?
2: Well, you know, yeah, that's a very good question. So we start with kind of the basics. So we test the products because there's no use in testing these products in human if the products themselves that we're administering don't contain what's required for the body to convert that to nitric oxide. So that's the first thing we do. We test this through that HPLC that, that quantifies the amount of nitrate and nitrite in these products. And again, 90 to 95% of the products out there don't de, don't contain any detectable nitrate and nitrite. So there's no need to go do any further testing beyond those because they cannot work. They will not, and they cannot work. So we put those in a a category by themselves. And then what we do is we take, okay, if if this particular product contains a certain amount of nitrate, then we know that the person that we're administering this to has to have the right world microbiome, has to have sufficient stomach acid production in order for the human body Mm -hmm. to take that nitrate in that product and metabolize it into a bioactive form of nitric oxide that can dilate blood vessels, improve athletic performance. So in those products, we take a, a wide variety of people, and then we, we give it to them. We can start an IV, and we do serial blood draws, and then we look at the ability of the body to, to increase either plasma or salivary levels of nitrite. And so if they increase salivary levels of nitrite, then that tells us that the bacteria are present. So when you consume these products, it takes at least 90 minutes. So you got to consume it. It's got to be swallowed. It's got to be absorbed in the gut, transported to our salivary glands. we got to secrete this, the nitrate in our salivary glands. The bacteria have to respire on it to convert it to nit- from nitrate to nitrite. Then we got to swallow our own saliva and get nitric oxide in the acid environment of the stomach. So what we're finding is even if you take these products that have nitrate in them, whether nitrate capsules or beetroot products, but people are using mouthwash or fluoride or they're taking in acids, they don't get any nitric oxide benefit from those. So in that case, it's it's difficult, if not impossible, to determine who would respond with better performance or better blood pressure lowering effects from those products because everybody's different. Your microbiome is completely different than mine. You may be taking in acids or may have achlorhydria for whatever reason, and my body may be able to produce stomach acid. So I'm gonna get a much better effect from that type of product than you would. And some people are not going to get any effect at all. And that's the problem I have with a lot of these companies calling their products nitric oxide products. Because by our metric and how we define nitric oxide activity of certain products is completely different than any other company out there. And they don't like that because it's basically telling the truth that their product may work in 10 to 15% of the population. And I'm not interested in providing a product that works in two out of 10 people. It's not what i think. We understand the science to the extent that we create nitric oxide in every single person that takes our products. We control and dictate the metabolic. Say we release nitric oxide, whether you have the right bacteria, whether you have stomach acid, whether you're using a fluorinated toothpaste, whether you have endothelial dysfunction or not, our products produce nitric oxide gas.
0: So would this make an argument for a first-line intervention for some people being dietary acid, like dietary stomach acid, like HCDL, and uh, some type of a probiotic, maybe even prebiotic, as being kind of a first-line intervention to start rebuilding that
2: aspect of the system? Yeah, so the the oral bacteria are completely different than the gut bacteria, right, by design. So most probiotics on the market are designed to restore the gut bacteria. Lactobacillus, a lot of the the communities that we, we've we identified. But what we're finding through our research is lactobacillus in the mouth shuts down nitric oxide production. And most pre- and probiotics that I've tested on the market do absolutely nothing to the oral microbiome. Uh, in fact, we've submitted a number of patents on this because we know which bacteria are responsible for this nitrate metabolism into nitric oxide production. And they're not found in any probiotics. You know, the FDA wanted to do long-term safety studies on these non-pathogenic commensal bacteria which is somewhat humorous. But anyway, those are the regulatory bodies. So to answer your question, we're still trying to figure that out. How do we restore the oral microbiome in the absence of mouthwash use or fluoride exposure? And we're starting to get a good handle on that. And you know, what we're finding is the lozenge that we generated. You know, most pathogenic bacteria are sensitive to nitric oxide. And because our lozenge has a resident time of about five to six minutes in the mouth, it kills the bad bacteria helped restore the diversity of the oral microbiome and improve nitric oxide production on its own. And it also recouples the enzyme in the lining of the blood vessel. So I think and and our strategy is always look, let's let's give the body what it needs, get out of its way, and let us the body do its job. But some people, you know, it becomes their habit. They they use a mouth rinse, they've used fluoride toothpaste for 20 years. And some people have acid reflux to the extent that it's it's almost impossible to wean off NSAs, uh because of the painful acid reflux or the gastroesophageal reflux disease in the Barrett's esophagus. So we have to be able to provide these people a source of nitric oxide because their body can't make it and their body's not going to make it as long as they continue to take these products.
0: Interesting. So are you able to share what your first-line intervention would be as the
2: current level of knowledge and data stands to re- repopulate the oral microbiome? Yeah, so what we're finding is nitrate itself. So if you throw in some more green leafy vegetables, these are what's called nitrate reducing bacteria. So they're facultative anaerobes. And what that means is if oxygen's around, they'll respire on oxygen. When oxygen becomes limited, and these are in the, deep in the crypts of the tongue, on the dorsal part of the tongue, the back of the tongue. So when oxygen becomes limiting, then they can respire on nitrogen, and they do this through the two-electron reduction of nitrate to nitrite. So simply by providing either nitrate or nitrite can help wake up these nitrate-reducing bacteria and give them more substrate to respire on. And then number two is we have to restore stomach acid production. You know, your body cannot heal without stomach acid. You can't break down proteins into amino acids. Uh, Hint acids are the basis for foodborne allergies. Uh, most autoimmune disease. Uh, so we have to give, we have to be able to make stomach acid. We need stomach acid to absorb things like magnesium, iron, selenium, chromium, iodine. And so people who can't make stomach acid become deficient in basic micronutrients because the parietal cells are des- in the stomach are designed to secrete hydrochloric acid to acidify the lumen of the stomach, so you can break down proteins into amino acids, and you can absorb basic nutrients like B vitamins. And when you shut down stomach acid production, you become nutrient deficient. You develop H. pylori, which are ulcer-causing bacteria, and you can't break down proteins into amino acids, so you develop autoimmune disease. So we have to be able to restore stomach acid. And the, the chemical reaction in the pyloric cells to make stomach acid requires iodine, requires zinc, requires sodium bicarb, sodium chloride, and some B vitamins. So we have to supplement these nutrients that are missing in people who have been on acids. So now the parietal cells have what they need to secrete stomach acid, and you can overcome uh, reflux disease. So reflux is not a symptom of overproduction of stomach acid. Reflux is a symptom of insufficient stomach acid production. Phenomenal. So here's here's
0: the question of the day. If I want to maintain teenage erections into my 90s, what should I be doing on a day-to-day basis?
2: Well, you know, that's the, yeah, that's the $100,000 question, right? Because I think we all want to live a long life, a full life, and free of disease. Uh, And there are a number of things that contribute to that. But I think, you know, I always tell people nitric oxide is foundational. If there's one thing that you should focus on, kind of the foundational aspect of longevity and performance, it's nitric oxide. But it's not a silver bullet. It's not the only thing. It's not an end-all, be-all, cure-all. But here's what we know from the science, that without adequate nitric oxide production, Anything you do from this point on is going to have limited clinical results. So, whether you're doing caloric restriction, intermittent fasting, sauna, exercise, if your body can't produce nitric oxide, then you're not going to get induction of mitochondrial biogenesis from caloric restriction or intermittent fasting. You're not going to get the adaptive effects of exercise without sufficient nitric oxide production. And then, you know, when we talk about kind of the objective measures of longevity, the telomeres become shorter. The length of the telomeres, the ends of the chromosome, are dependent upon the cell's ability to produce nitric oxide to activate an enzyme called telomerase to prevent telomere shortening. The cell can't make mitochondria, which are the energy production organelles of the cell, without nitric oxide. And nitric oxide is what controls the efficiency of mitochondrial ATP production. And then the other aspect of longevity and regenerative medicine are stem cells. You know, we, we're we constantly wearing ourselves out, and it's the job of our stem cells to mobilize, differentiate, repair, and replace dysfunctional cells. And nitric oxide is the signal that tells our own stem cells to mobilize and differentiate. So aging is really just wearing ourselves out and the inability to repair and replace tissues. It's not the loss of stem cells. It's the loss of stem cell function. And that stem cell function is dependent upon the cell's ability to produce nitric oxide, to mobilize endogenous stem cells to go and repair. So again, everything we know about human performance, longevity, health and wellness, nitric oxide is foundational. But if you have low testosterone, nitric oxide is not going to help that. If you have low thyroid, nitric oxide is not going to fix that. If you've got dental infections or exposed to other toxins, nitric oxide is not going to affect that. So we have to dig a little bit deeper and figure out and optimize each individual. And that's the whole basis of personalized medicine. But un- unless we restore the production of nitric oxide, then nothing else is going to work.
0: In your experience, what do you see as being maybe the greatest contributor? Maybe if you don't know how, how well you are at the data or just your experience in general?
3: So it all actually starts with endothelial dysfunction. The endothelium is the inner lining of your arteries. It's one cell thick. And if you stripped out your endothelium from your arteries, you'd have the surface area of six tennis courts. So your endothelium is the protective coating that prevents stuff that's floating through the lumen where the blood is flowing from the wall itself. And if the endothelium gets scratched up, then that's when plaque is more likely to develop. So all the things you mentioned, concentrated fats cause it? Could high cholesterol cause it. Can, but you have to first have endothelial dysfunction. And so the endothelium releases something very important called nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is a short-lived gas. Nitric oxide causes the muscle in the artery to relax, so that improves blood flow, that improves blood pressure. But the nitric oxide also acts like a nonstick surface, so then things don't stick to the blood vessels to begin with. To your question about cholesterol, cholesterol is neither good nor bad. It's just not good to have cholesterol building up in the walls of the artery. So it is a myth. There's no such thing as good cholesterol. There's no such thing as bad cholesterol. There's just cholesterol. And every cell in your body needs cholesterol without cholesterol you die so you use your cholesterol to make your sex hormones to make your bile acids to digest your fats to make your cell membranes so cholesterol is something that's needed by every cell in the body most of the cells make their own supply but the liver is the production factory for it so you make these things called particles the particles full up full of cholesterol triglycerides which are mostly energy different vitamins and different things called phospholipids which are building blocks for the cells and those particles are made in the liver they get chipped out through the bloodstream, so if they stick to the walls of the artery, they're more likely to drop off their cargo in the walls of the artery than to drop them off in your muscle. So you want to go looking at the particles because the cholesterol is important, but it only matters where that cholesterol gets deposited.
0: Very cool. So what are the the root causes of this endothelial dysfunction?
3: Typically, it's inflammation. Uh, it can be you know high insulin, high glucose. You know they. On the outside of the endothelium, there's something called the glycocalyx. It's like this gel coat. If the gel coat gets damaged, then the endothelium is more likely to get impaired. And the gel coat can get damaged by you know, a poor standard American uh, diet, you know, lack of exercise, sleep apnea, chronic infections, chronic heavy metal exposure. So there's a couple hundred different things that can damage the glycocalyx, but the downstream effects is that you stop making as much nitric oxide and things start sticking to the arteries.
0: So, talk to me about nitric oxide because I hear this happening in like multiple different directions, right? So, there's, you know, I'll, I'll let you kind of go down the paths of like the food, uh, the food uh, uh, factors, and then supplemental factors, and I think there's different pathways. and I'd Love to have you maybe dissect like that for us. It's also the,
3: the thing is that, you know, nitric oxide is mostly good. That you know, it won the the Nobel Prize in uh, 1998 for its discovery. But nitric oxide can also have some deleterious effects where if it's found in the wrong places. But from a cardiovascular standpoint, you want to have healthy levels of nitric oxide. Again, the nitric oxide causes the arteries to dilate and also prevents stuff from sticking to them. And for guys, you know, they're concerned about uh, you know erectile performance, that's mostly a nitric oxide story. So, the, you know, the little blue pills, that works on the nitric oxide pathways by keeping nitric oxide around longer to dilate the blood vessels. So, there's generally two pathways to make nitric oxide. Uh, one of them is called the you know, L-arginine, the L-citrulline pathway. That pretty much dominates you know, when you're under 40 years old. And when the arginine converts to alcitrulline, nitric oxide's kicked off uh, or just released, I should say. Um, but after the age of 40, you start becoming more uh, dependent on nitric oxide from a salivary production method. So when you eat your beets and greens, you get those inorganic nitrates, the bacteria in your saliva, break those things down to nitrites. You swallow that. And then if you have acid in your stomach, the conversion happens and we'll make it into nitric oxide, the gas, and it diffuses through the the walls of the stomach. So for people who use a lot of mouthwash or they're drinking a lot of water with heavy fluoride in it, you mess up the bacteria population in your saliva and they can't make that initial conversion. And then people get stuck on acid blocking medicines like the, you know, proton pump inhibitors they don't have stomach acid, so they don't make as many enzymes. You need acid in your stomach to you know, digest proteins, and enzymes are just a form of protein. Uh, so if you don't have the right enzymes, you can't make that conversion to nitric oxide. So uh, not uncommonly, you find something in somebody's environment, and you withdraw it, and their nitric oxide levels improve. But that's kind of the dietary pathways. But as you know, in your world, exercise is very important. You release nitric oxide from muscles um, when you're stimulating them. And then one field I'm kind of passionate about is circadian biology. One reason wearing the in the blue blocking glasses um, is your skin is the solar panel. And when you're outside in the sunlight, the UVA rays from the sun hit the skin and cause that nitric oxide to be released from the blood vessels directly.
0: Why at 40 does our arginine citrulline pathway start to diminish?
3: Uh, I think it's thought that it's more that the, uh, the enzyme efficiency really goes down. It's not that somebody is really deficient in L-arginine, it's just that they can't easily convert it over to L-citrulline.
0: So would that just be like an age thing? Is it a cellular health thing? Is it a mitochondrial health thing? Is it a dietary thing? What, what's the you know mechanistic underlying reason there? Because my brain just goes, through, well, how do we not make that happen?
3: Yeah, I honestly don't know the exact, you know, multifactorial reason why the, the enzyme efficiency goes down over time. You know, it could be, you know, like I said, you know, people's stomach acid may not be optimized at that point. Um, you know, there are different you know, supplements on the, the market that help kind of make that conversion happen. So um, so it's mostly, again, just trying to get out of the body's way so it's able to do what it normally does. You know, there's a lot of those, you know, pre-workout supplements that have, you know, tons of L-arginine in them, and, you know, super nitric oxide booster. Well, you take all the arginine you want, but if you don't have the enzyme to make the conversion, you're not going to get the effect that you want.
0: Convert into citrulline specifically or convert citrulline sure. to nitric acid nitric oxide?
3: When when the L-arginine gets converted to L-citrulline, nitric oxide is produced in the, in the reaction.
0: So why would someone take uh, L-citrulline supplementally versus L-arginine?
3: They think they have a deficiency and that's very rare that you would actually have a deficiency.
0: But as far as like different ones, so like what we've always heard is that citrulline is a better precursor to nitric oxide than arginine is that. And it's, but it sounds like when, when arginine converts into citrulline, nitric oxide is converted. So I just want to, do you understand mechanistically what's happening there?
3: Um, no, I probably would defer to, to do a little bit more research to be able to answer that one.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah, no problem. So, um, moving on to the, the dietary nitric oxide mechanisms, like understanding a little bit more about that. Cause I think there's a lot of people up there spe- specifically with the carnivore diet, people who are missing these nitrates, right? And I'm curious how nitrates, nitrites. I'm curious how you feel about um, just that in general, as far as it's, its contribution directly to cardiovascular health.
3: So, I mean, I've taken care of many patients who are doing, you know, carnivore diets, or also just, you know, um, experimenting with their diet and seeing how things, you know, affect their arterial system. And that's kind of the you know, the great uh, um, kind of debate, you know, is a carnivore diet heart healthy? could be. So tests don't guess, you know, what are your arteries doing with that nutrition change? So, you know, get a good set of blood work before you do a big nutrition change. And then if you have access to it, there's different uh, non-invasive ways to test the health of your arteries and nitric oxide production. So if you do those tests and you have you know, good nitric oxide production, uh, make the dietary change, you know, go full carnivore if you want. Uh, and then, you know, recheck, you know, 30, 45 days later and see what are your arteries doing with the response to that nutrition change.
0: Does too much protein negatively impact nitric oxide production? Not that I know of. Yeah, interesting. I've heard I've heard some thoughts around it negatively impacting. I wasn't sure what I would know mechanistically. Yeah, I I
3: don't have anything off top of my head that would negatively do that.
0: Okay, good to know. Yeah, good. That kind of refutes some of the the theories I've heard. At least I'll do some more digging. Um, So, walking us down some of your uh, some more paths as far as what people can be doing to support this optimization of heart function, right? As, as you've seen, as we spoke about last time, seems to be a really large number of people in our space, in my fitness space, having heart attacks. And, you know, there could be some, some talk around, as we spoke last time with the vaccine, um, there could just be obviously the kind of the idea of these, these uh, comorbidities existing. But I'm curious what you think as far as like best practices, I know you're obviously a big uncertainty in biology, but what else should we be looking at as kind of the big levers to optimize heart cardiac function?
3: So the first thing is just do a d- bigger deep dive into you know, what are your true cardiovascular risk factors because most people know if they have high blood pressure, high blood sugar, quote, high cholesterol, you would know if you smoked and you would know if you're obese. You know, those are five risk factors for cardiovascular disease, but there's probably 400 risk factors. Mm. You know the arteries respond to three major uh, insults. So they they you know, respond with oxidation, inflammation, or autoimmune dysregulation. And those will lead to ultimately the downstream endothelial dysfunction. So there are more um, advanced blood work that you can look at. There's, you know, five or six different inflammatory markers you can see, like how on fire is your body, you know, just looking at somebody from the outside, they can look very fit on the outside, but their arteries can be 20, 30 years older from the inside. Maybe that person doesn't sleep well. Maybe that person, you know, is a super hard charger. And they never have a rest day, so their body's never able to recover. So just because you look fit on the outside doesn't mean that your arterial system is healthy. So start with a good, you know, history and physical. You know, with, you know, does that person sleep? You know, what is the nutrition regimen? All that, you know, circadian biology. But then do an advanced lipid panel with some inflammatory markers, and then you know, my area of expertise is doing non-invasive testing to look at the arteries way before you actually have an event. You know, by the time you wait for somebody to have a heart attack or stroke. You know, you probably had 10 years before you could have intervened on that person. And unfortunately, you know, many people's first sign that they have any plaque in their arteries is that they're having a heart attack. So, you know, the classic symptoms of chest pain, pressure, shortness of breath, you know, exercise and those are good, you know, red be- you know, red warning signs that, hey, you probably have to be a blockage in your artery, you need to go get that checked out. And those are the people that, you know, when they do a stress test, either, a, you know, exercise stress test or a chemical stress test they're likely gonna fail the stress test and that leads to intensifying their medical therapy, you know, potentially a revascularization with a stent or bypass surgery. But the people that, you know, you really wanna catch are the people in their forties and fifties who have no signs that there's any problem. You know, you wanna go looking earlier. So the test that you would look at it, you know, two, they would look at the endothelial function. One of those tests is called an endopad. The other test is called the max pulse. After that is, you know, if the endothelium is impaired, you would look at how thick the walls of the artery are. If the wall, of the artery is starting to get thicker, then there's more likely plaques can start developing. That test is called the carotid intimal medial thickness test, or CIMT. It's an ultrasound of the neck RV and will give you a vascular age. It's a famous physician from the, the 1600s, Thomas Sintam, that had said, man is as old as his arteries. So again, you could be 45 years old biologically, but your arteries could be 65 years old. So. You find that person, and you're much more aggressive with their medication, supplements, and lifestyle, trying to stabilize that plaque so they don't go on to have an event. And then a test that many people, even in the carnival world, are familiar with is the, the calcium score test or the CT coronary calcium score test. Great test. I use it all the time. You know, calcium is supposed to be in your bones. It's not supposed to be in the walls of your arteries. If there's evidence of calcifications in your arteries, that indicates that plaque is present. And the more calcium, the more plaque is present but you can sometimes get fooled with a calcium score test of being zero because maybe you're just not that further down the pathway of atherosclerosis. So you have endothelial dysfunction. You're starting to get some vessel wall inflammation. You're starting to get some soft plaque. Those aren't going to get picked up on a calcium score test. It's going to be a couple of years for that plaque maybe calcifies. So there's a lot of people on the internet say, hey, I got a calcium score zero. I'm good to go. That doesn't necessarily ring true. You know, there's still you know a chance that you have soft plaque uh, that could rupture and cause an event.
0: Okay, so um, coming back just, to, just a step, um, you mentioned all of endothelial function tests. I'd love to have you just walk us through them and then maybe have some best practices supplementally or otherwise to optimize that.
3: So there's a couple of tests that you can do on your own. There's a couple that you would need at doctor's office to be able to get, you know, the, the, the kind of the quick and dirty ones at home or, you know, what is your normal blood pressure? Yeah, you know, blood pressure is pretty much you know, a direct reflection to how much nitric oxide your body can produce. So if your blood pressure is consistently greater than 120 over 80, you know you probably have some type of nitric oxide dysfunction, and you got to go dig into why is that happening. So if you have normal blood pressure, you likely have you know pretty good endothelial function. There are also companies that sell nitric oxide salivary strips. You know you put a dab of saliva on it, and it'll change colors like litmus paper. If it's bright red, your body's making a lot of you know nitrate uh, conversion through your saliva pathway. So that's kind of the easy ways to do it at home. In the office, two tests I use. One is a test called the max pulse. It measures and called the pulse wave velocity. It looks like a regular pulse ox that you put on your finger to measure your oxygen levels. But as the blood leaves your heart and it goes through your blood vessels, you know, when it gets down to your fingertip, you know, if it's a healthy artery, it should expand and contract quickly. So it is kind of like an accordion. So the artery should expand and contract real quick. If it doesn't, you know, and your arteries are like a lead pipe the blood will race down there, bounce off it, and bounce back and reflect really fast. So the analogy is, you know, you're in the pool and you're splashing water on the, you know, the wall or whatever and you see that water bouncing back to you. Well, if it comes back really fast, you know you have lead pipe arteries. Lead pipe arteries either have a lot of scar tissue in it or they just don't release any nitric oxide and they're just like really clamped down. The way you know if it's kind of permanent is you optimize their nitric oxide and their blood pressure improves and their pulse wave velocity improves. Great, you've kind of reverse at an earlier stage. The other test that I frequently will offer patients is a test called the endopat. Uh, it's non-invasive. It's a 15-minute test uh, validated mostly at the Mayo Clinic uh, against some of the invasive uh, tests that we used to do. You know, we used to put wires past people's blockages in the coronary arteries and measure how you know, severe the blockage was You know, past the blockage, or I should say the flow past the blockage was versus the flow before the blockage. But unfortunately, uh, people don't have to have an invasive cat just to, to get this data anymore. So the endopad test essentially is a five minute test where you're measuring uh, the flow in each fingertip. Then there's five minutes where you have a blood pressure cup on your non-dominant arm and pump up the blood pressure cuff over their systolic blood pressure. So not uh, not dangerous, but you usually look at that pins and needle sensation in your hands um, and it looks like a little flat line on the monitor for that arm. After five minutes, you open up the blood pressure cuff. The blood rushes back down into the hand, and you'll get what's known as reactive hyperemia. That means that the small blood vessels, as they see that large volume of blood coming back, they'll have shear stress. That shear stress will cause nitric oxide to be released from those arteries. If you release nitric oxide, then the arteries will open up and the flow improves rapidly. And the test gives you a number. It gives you something called the reactive hyperemia index, or RHI. If your number is under 1.68, you have endothelial dysfunction. If you're less than 2.1, you're normal but not optimal, An optimal would be over three to four. A three to four is not common, but three to four means that you know your arteries are tripling or quadrupling in size when they're under stress. So it's a great test to tell people, okay, you are optimizing for your nutrition, your circadian biology, your uh, exercise. Okay, keep doing what you're doing. Or if it's low, okay, these are the things you can support the body's ability to make more nitric oxide.
0: So specifically on that test, is like just walk me through like the, the logic of it. So I, I I block the blood flow into my lower arm, I release it, and as the blood flows in, the, the blood vessels dilate, and uh, and so the ability to dilate extensively that's what we're ultimately looking at. Like so, if it's like a one point six eight, that's like you didn't dilate that much. So or is it refractory time? Like what exactly is it measuring?
3: So it's measuring the uh, brachial activity, the brachial arteries, the artery that's in your kind of bicep going down into your forearm. Um, it's a pretty good surrogate for what's going on in your coronary arteries, the arteries that sit on the outside of the heart and provide nutrients to the heart muscle itself. So it's like a stress test for the arteries. So normally when you're exercising, you have to bring more blood flow to whatever uh, tissue you're trying to stimulate. So this is just telling you how well you can bring that blood flow to a a tissue that needs blood flow.
0: Would you recommend doing something like that on a consistent basis, almost to like train the system to produce more nitric oxide? Um...
3: Not particularly this test, but I mean, I think that probably kind of falls into the blood flow restriction type testing yeah, yeah. or actually the blood flow restriction training. Yeah. Um, it's something that is that is kind of one of the, um, the factors that is probably helping. I mean, part of that too is that, you know, it's affecting uh, lactic acid and uh, growth hormone when you do that type of training. Yeah, you do have to know what you're doing because if you do that stuff too tight, uh, you definitely can cause some necrosis or tissue damage. So, you know, work with somebody who's done that stuff before, before going to you biohack know, it, yourself.
4: any disease, name a disease, type 2 diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, depression, uh, Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's disease, coronary disease, atrial fibrillation, on and on and on. You cannot get it right unless you address the contribution of the microbiome. You know, Do I'm, I'm actually dealing with that pretty significantly right now. So I,
0: I coach a small number of high performers and they you know, optimize a lot of things. We can optimize for lifestyle, we can optimize for nutrition, we can optimize workouts, but there's there are some people, you know, probably 20, 20 25% of people Results are just okay. You're like, why is this person not getting results? And then we take we take an analysis of the microbiome, or or ultimately look at the gut health. And there's always something there. Like it seems like ten out of ten times, when they, that person gets stuck and they can't get the results thereafter, it's like, oh, we know where we need to look. And you know, we're kind of reversing our process now to where we look at the microbiome right off the bat, so that we can start saying, hey, what do we know? And the challenge that I'm running into, if I'm being honest, one of the reasons I'm so excited to talk to you today is there's not a lot of experts out there who are actually giving you valuable actionable information. Everyone's like, oh, take a take a probiotic or hey, eat some fermented foods or hey, remove the remove the toxic burden. They're like, yeah, we did all that. What now, right? And so that was one of the greatest things that made me take interest in your books and in your information. You're somebody who's actually at the tip of the spear and diving into it and giving us research and giving us actionable steps that we can actually see progress with. And so, uh, yeah, I want to dig into maybe how you made the shift because I think there's a correlation that I'd like for you to draw. How you made the shift from cardiology into the microbiome? I'm curious if, if it was because you drew
4: the correlation there between cardiac health and, and microbiome. Well, it all started when I wanted to help people stop having heart attacks and dying. You know, And of course, uh, this really occurred after my mom died of sudden cardiac death after her successful two-vessel coronary angioplasty. This is about 27 years ago or so. And so, back then and this remains true today if you said hey my dad had a heart attack at 57 and died and i'm i'm 52 right and i want to know is that in my future well if you go to john Q. primary care he's not going to know he's going to tell you some bs answer like test your cholesterol which is useless useless absolutely useless Or ask about family history so you're at risk okay but what do you do about it all they have in their treatment armamentarium, right? is our statin drugs and related things. Cut your saturated fat. We help publish those data. That does not work. It does not work. And so one of the things I I started doing is looking for other causes. For instance, vitamin D deficiency. When I started addressing vitamin D deficiency many years ago, it was the first time I saw coronary disease regress, reverse. Not completely, but partially. Uh, I also rejected this idea of testing for cholesterol and started doing lipoprotein testing. Cholesterol is meant to be an indirect way to assess lipoproteins, fat-carrying proteins in the bloodstream that lead to heart disease. Well, we can measure lipoproteins. We don't need that 1958, 1960, beat up old, uh, outdated method called cholesterol testing. And if you do lipoprotein testing, like NMR, nuclear magnetic resonance, take your plasma, the clear part of your blood, put it in a, uh, a magnet, an uh, NMR, MRI device, same thing, and you can see what's in it. And we've been able to do that. I've been doing it for 25 years. Mm. And you see that there's a great excess of small LDL particles in people with coronary disease. And this has been borne out in 50 clinical trials, that small LDL is a major predictor of, of coronary of heart disease. Well, there's only two things that cause small LDL particles, grains and sugars, period. Mm. <laughs> so that, so we're, we're told by official agencies to reduce heart disease risk, cut fat and saturated fat. There is no such science that shows that. There is no evidence to support that. There are some observations that support it, but there's no real uh, clinical science to support that. So I took grains and sugars, wheat grains and sugars out of the diet. I saw small LDL particles drop from like 2,400 nanomoles per liter, article count per volume to zero. But then people started saying things like, I lost 63 pounds. I don't need to take my metformin or my uh, other drugs for diabetes because I'm not diabetic anymore. My rheumatoid arthritis is gone. My psoriasis receded. My depression is lifted. Uh, I lost 11 inches off my waist, on and on and on. I stumbled on this. It also became clear that it was uh, important to address several nutrient deficiencies common to modern people, not to the diet but to modern life, like vitamin D. If you live in a northern climate work indoors, wear clothes in public, you don't get vitamin D. Magnesium, because we filter our drinking water, we have to because water has sewage in it and other things. But water filtration removes all magnesium. Iodine, omega fatty acids, similar issues. But I saw that we also addressed the microbiome in a very basic way. A high potency multi-species probiotic, prebiotic fibers, related things to nourish microbes and some fermented foods. But I still saw that as far as people got with these basic efforts, some people still said things like this, hey, I still have food intolerances. I can't eat nuts or beans, legumes or FODMAPs or nightshades or histamine-containing foods. That was a common one that, that persisted despite all these changes. Or they lost 70 pounds but were stuck with another 35 to go and it wouldn't come off. Or their rheumatoid arthritis was so much better. They're off their biologic, saving several thousand, several thousand dollars a month in their copay. They're off the prednisone, but they have to go back and forth with other anti inflammatory drugs because they're having minor flares. So, in other words, I saw great improvements, but some residual problems. This, and that include those basic efforts at rebuilding a microbiome. So that's when I dove into the microbiome. And Ben, I, I, I was astounded at how many incredible things can emerge with intelligent management of the microbiome. I know we don't want to spend too much time on this today, but
0: I don't want to gloss over this, because this, this sounds like you know coming from the horse's mouth, from a cardiologist speaking about statins and fats, because to be honest, even someone at my level is still getting so much conflicting information. You have people out there who are seen as, as the experts in the industry, Saying that, hey, you know what, statins may still be a good solution for some people. And some people are still saying, hey, you know what? Saturated fat is probably still bad for you if, if you're someone who wants to optimize for cardio, cardiac outputs or or sorry, cardiac um health ultimately. So you know, if we could just go a little bit deeper into that, like, is there no benefit to, to statins a year in your experience and what the data says? And also, like, shoot, you know, saturated fat, if we could talk just a little bit about that, because you know, I, I I try to ask as many people as I can to try to get to
4: the bottom of this, this information. So with the statin uh, cholesterol drugs, so if, if we if, if you and I went back to the science, the published evidence, one, it's almost all paid for by the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. That's a big problem, right? So, th- in other words, if you if you're paying the twenty three million dollars to fund the study, it's likely to turn out in your favor, yeah. because the researchers want to make you happy. That's just human nature. So the great wealth of statin supported data is generated by the manufacturers. Two, they use something called relative risk. They say things like this. So, if we had 100 people and they took placebo and there were two heart attacks and we had another 100 people who took a drug drug and there was one heart attack, if we were the pharmaceutical industry, we would say 50% reduction in heart attack, which of course is very misleading because we hear that, oh, wow. 50% 50% of all heart attacks are going to occur not going to happen, of course, which is not true. And so uh, they have a minor effect, maybe a 1% effect over five years. In other words, a very trivial effect. Now think about this too. So we have agencies telling us to eat, t- to follow a lifestyle, cut your fat, eat more healthy whole grains, food industry also selling you soft drinks at the same time and white bun, all that stuff. So we have a lifestyle advocated by various agencies. That causes heart disease, and then we throw a drug at you that has a minor effect. And of course, there has been—if statin drugs are so successful, if heart healthy diets been so successful—why there has there been no reduction in heart disease? So a lot of problems with that. With that, but the real tragedy, Ben, is if you focus on those things—cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, statin drugs. It takes your attention away from the real things that cause heart disease and so no one's paying attention to insulin resistance or inflammation or the thing that comes from a disrupted intestinal microbiome endotoxemia if you pay attention to those things you have magnificent control of cardiovascular risk and you don't need to and of course ignore the silly dietary guidelines and you have magnificent control over cardiovascular risk Thanks for listening to the muscle intelligence podcast for full
0: episode guides with important takeaways and bonus resources, head over to muscleintelligence.com learn. If you enjoy the show and find value in the content, please subscribe, share this podcast with at least one person, you know, and love who would benefit from this content. Leave us a review and support our sponsors. You can see the full list of show sponsors discounts and get exclusive muscle intelligence deals. At MuscleIntelligence.com/resources to join our private community and get VIP access to my master classes, upcoming muscle camps, and other resources that we don't post anywhere else. Head to MuscleIntelligence.com/community. Most of all, thank you very much for your trust, for your time, and most importantly, for supporting health and fitness in this world. Enjoy your day, and I look forward to seeing you here next week.